At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, it is our privilege to partner with local churches both in the United States and around the world in training men for the gospel ministry. If your church supports CBTS with $200 a month and a commitment to pray for us, any student in your church can attend CBTS tuition-free. To learn more about how you can partner with us in providing informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, visit cbtseminary.org. You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You want to take your Bibles now and please turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy in chapter 3, verse 8. If you're using the Pew Bible, this is found on page 992. So we continue then our study of Christ's revelation through Paul about how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We've already seen in chapter 1 that Christ's church is to hold fast to sound doctrine that's in accordance with the gospel. It's a responsibility given to the church that includes combating, fighting against false teachers and false teaching. Any doctrine that's other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. As well as including the important positive proclamation of the one and only gospel that truly saves, that truly transforms the good news of Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. Then in chapter 2, we're reminded as the church of Jesus Christ that we are not sufficient in ourselves to do these things. And therefore, our first priority as a church is to pray, an act of dependence upon the Lord. That as a church, we are to pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And that as we worship and learn in the church, men and women are to pray and serve according to God's design with all holiness, reverence, and yes, self-control. Then when we came to chapter 3 last week, we saw that Paul gives specific instruction on God's design for leadership in the church. Last week we saw the noble calling and the noble qualifications of those who would be elders or bishops, pastors, all the same office there in the church. And this morning, then, we consider the qualifications for the other office in the church, that of the office of deacon. So follow with me as we start there in verse 8 of chapter 3, and read down to verse 13. Hear now God's holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. 
Amen. Let's pray together again. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift that you've given to us of your word, the Holy Scriptures, which we know from 2 Timothy 3 are able to make one wise unto salvation. Not only that, all Scripture is breathed out by you, O Lord, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That as we seek to be a church that's faithful to you, we are not left without instruction. And so, Lord, we thank you, and we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, enable us as a church to hear and to heed your instructions here concerning the office of deacon in the church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I've already said in this series that there is much confusion concerning leadership in our world. Confusion, yes, in our society. I don't have to list out the illustrations in recent days of how there is a crisis of leadership in our country. You know what I speak of. But there's not only a crisis of leadership in our society, there's also a lot of confusion about leadership in the church. Questions abound. Questions like who ought to lead? How should they lead? Are we to have committees, presidents, executive officers, or are we to have no leaders at all? Are there offices in the church? And if so, how many? One, two, three, four, five, or more? And on and on we could go. But we are those who understand Christ is the king and head of his church. And as such, he has given clear instructions on how his church is to be ordered. It's not left up to us to just figure it out or just to do it however we please. Our own 1689 Confession of Faith summarizes it this way in chapter 26, paragraph 8. A particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. And the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so called and gathered, for the peculiar administration of ordinances and execution of power or duty, which he entrusts them with or calls them to, and to be continued to the end of the world, are bishops or elders, that being one office, and deacons. So Christ himself has given to us in his word, here we see it in 1 Timothy 3, that there are to be those who are officers in the office of elders or deacons in the church. And it is our servant king who calls and equips some men in his church to serve in these offices. Yet even among those who recognize these offices and the office of deacon, questions remain. What is their function in the church? Are they over the elders, under the elders, beside the elders? How do they relate to the other office? How do they relate to the members of the church? Well, this morning I want us to seek to answer three questions concerning this office of deacon. First, what is a deacon? Secondly, who may serve as a deacon? And thirdly, why should someone serve as a deacon? So these three questions let us consider from our passage. First, what is a deacon. And it's helpful here to understand that the original word here, 
that's translated as deacons, diakonoi, uh, can be used in different senses in the New Testament. In its broadest sense, it literally means a servant, one who serves. And very literally, it means one who serves tables. You can see this use in different places in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 8, there you remember Peter uh, uh, is in the house there with his mother-in-law. Jesus enters, sees his, Peter's mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touches her hand and heals her. And then it says that she rose and began to serve him. And that sense of serving with bringing of food in other ways is used. It's a verb form of that word. Or you can think about John chapter 12, where Jesus is with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And it says that they gave a dinner to him there and Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those who was reclining with Jesus at table. So table service in a very literal sense. Lexicons say this word means this, serves it means one who serves as an intermediary in a transaction, an agent who gets something done at the behest of a superior. So in the broad sense, this word means a servant. It can be used, or minister is the same word, one who ministers, one who serves in that way. And it can be used of many different people in the church. Paul himself who's an apostle, in the office, we could say, of apostle, used the term, uses the term to describe himself as a servant, a diakonos, of Christ in places like Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 4. So there's the broad sense of this term. But here, and in other places, it's also used in a narrower sense to refer to a particular office in the church. So, for example, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul writes, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And so here you see three groups mentioned. All the saints, which we could refer to as the members of the church there at Philippi. And then within that membership, there are those who are overseers, or we could say elders, and deacons. So the word is being used of a specific office in the church. And that's how the word is being used here in chapter 3, verse 8 of 1 Timothy, in the narrow sense of a particular office in the church. Now we need to understand this idea of office. It means you've been given something officially, and that is you've been delegated a measure of authority. All authority in this world comes from God, the one who has all authority, and Christ who has all authority in heaven and on earth. But then some of that authority is delegated to those who are to serve those whom they have authority over. And so the idea of office entails this idea of delegated authority from Christ, which in God's economy means authority to serve God's people. Remember, leadership in Christ's kingdom is always servant leadership. It's not like the world which seeks to lord it over others, but it is that which is like Christ. And that's why Christians in the past spoke of deacons as those who serve three tables, so to speak. You may know that uh, some of the Puritans in England made their way over, whether it was the Mayflower or other trips, to New England. 
And among the New England Puritans who were Congregationalists, they wrote a document called the Cambridge Platform of Polity in 1648. Listen to how they described the office of deacon. They said this, The office and the work of deacons is to receive the offerings of the church, gifts given to the church, and to keep the treasury of the church, and therewith to serve the tables which the church is to provide for. And then it lists three tables. The Lord's table, and secondly, the table of the ministers, and of such as are in necessity, to whom they are to distribute in simplicity. About a hundred or so years later, uh, John Gill, who is a pastor of a Baptist church there in England, the same church later that Charles Spurgeon would pastor, uh, John Gill wrote this about the three tables in his work, The Body of Divinity. First, there was the Lord's table. That is what we have with the Lord's Supper. And this is what he says the deacons are to do. They are to, at the administration of the ordinance of the supper, the deacon's business is to provide everything necessary for it, as the bread and the wine and all kind of furniture needful on that occasion. That's what he would say. Then secondly, the minister's table. That is to care, to take care that a proper provision is made for the sustenance of himself and his family understanding that Christ has ordained that those who preach the gospel should live of it. And then lastly, what Gill calls the poor man's table. And he says this, it was an apostolical order given to the churches that they should make a collection of the poor for the poor saints on the first day of the week. Which collections, and those made at the Lord's Supper, are to be received by the deacons with whatsoever gifts may come into their hands and to be distributed to the necessities of the saints. And so they are in that sense to take in those gifts given and then to distribute them to these three tables. And this idea is confirmed by what we read earlier at the instituting of the first deacons in Acts chapter 6. Just consider with me again what we, what we read there. Consider the situation. There were those who were in need, in necessity, widows, not being cared for. What was the solution? The solution was a division of labor. Priority was given for the apostles and the elders, we could say, for the work of prayer and the ministry of the word, that they should be able to focus and concentrate on these things, and yet to not see among the church neglect in the care of these widows. So then what was the process? The process for the solution was to ordain men to take over that work, which we could say are the first deacons. They were not chosen by the apostles alone, but they were actually chosen by the church. And there were qualifications given as for how to choose these men. They had to be men of good reputation, men who were full of the Holy Spirit, And then, as they were chosen by the church, they would be installed or appointed by the apostles through prayer and the laying on of hands. And what was the result of this solution? Verse 7 in Acts 6 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number multiply of disciples in Jerusalem, 
and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. One present-day author says this about deacons. Deacons are those who are men filled with the Holy Spirit then, under the leadership of the elders, commissioned by the church to serve so that the word of God will multiply, the number of disciples will increase, and peace and unity in the body is maintained, and the practical needs of the body are supplied. So this then is the work of the deacons. It's a spiritual work of serving the practical needs of the church. And so it is caring for what we can say those three tables. And it includes things like feeding the poor, caring for the sick, visiting the elderly, handling cases of benevolence, managing the gifts and the finances of the church. Therefore, it can be extended to caring for the grounds or the property that the church has for its work to the Lord. And so while the deacon is dealing with the more physical or natural aspects of serving, their service is nonetheless spiritual service. It includes, on the one hand, we could say spiritual activities. As our deacons come and care for those in need, They are praying with the distressed. They're reminding them of the consolation found in the scriptures, in the gospel, in the giving of aid and benevolence. The deacons will also give the hope of the gospel to those who come from outside of the church and are unbelievers. This is what sets apart diaconal ministry from, we could say, just worldly charities. We could be thankful for charities in society and the ways in which, in God's common grace, Humanity cares for other humans. That is a good thing. But here is the distinct thing about the work of the diaconate. It's done in the name of Christ, motivated by the love of Christ. And in that sense, all the work that the deacons do is spiritual work. Furthermore, we can say this. This is a work that requires spiritual discernment and wisdom, discernment to know when is mercy merciful and when is giving more aid actually not being merciful. What benevolence action is going to be the best for the soul of this person in front of me and other issues to untangle and to seek the Lord for wisdom about And so you see, deacons are to be men who are full of the spirit and of wisdom. We also need to recognize this does not mean that deacons actually do all the work themselves, but they are appointed to lead, organize, and administrate these activities of the church under the oversight, yes, of the eldership. And so there is an office. Deacons actually do have delegated authority. And they can call upon the members of the church, the church body, to serve in caring for the physical needs of the body and those outside. And in this way, the deacons free the eldership to focus on their work of prayer and the ministry of the word. And it provides health, strength, and stability to the body through its care and service. So that's what a deacon is, a servant of Christ an office in the church to do this spiritual work of serving the practical needs of the church. But then we have to ask and answer this question, who may serve as a deacon? 
And this is where we come, again, in verses 8 to 12, to qualifications. And as we read through them, you'll see they are similar to the qualifications of elders, and yet there are a few notable differences. And so once again, let's consider them in groupings in these three areas of a man's life, his personal life, his spiritual life, and also his family life. What are the qualifications then concerning his personal life? And that's what we see there in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, nor greedy for dishonest gain. So the first is they must be dignified. It's a word that means not that you're uh, someone who's hoity-toity. No, it means someone who is worthy of respect. It could also be translated in that sense, serious. Or we could say that it corresponds to the qualification for elders to be respectable. In verse 2, it's one who, whose conduct and attitude wins the admiration of others because it is worthy of respect. But then secondly, he must be one who's not double-tongued. Obviously, it doesn't mean that he grows another tongue, but it's talking about sincerity. Someone who's not given to double-talk. In other words, they're not someone who speaks out of both sides of his mouth, their mouth. A deacon must be honest. He must be consistent. If he says he's going to do something, he follows through and does it. This corresponds then to the qualifications of an elder who must be self-controlled and not quarrelsome in verses 2 and 3. And then thirdly, he must be one who's not addicted to much wine. That corresponds, of course, to verse 3, an elder is not given to drunkenness. Of course, that doesn't mean that a deacon never drinks any alcohol, but if he does, it's always done in moderation. And then lastly, concerning personal life, he's not greedy for dishonest gain. That corresponds to how an elder in his personal life must not be a lover of money. And this, of course, is vitally important in the diaconate, for it is their charge to care for the finances, the Gifts, the offerings of God's people to both collect and distribute them. It's a sacred trust. And if he's greedy for dishonest gain, then there is that great temptation to steal from God, God and his people. And so these are the qualifications concerning his personal life. But then it must go on to the qualifications concerning his spiritual life and abilities there in verses 9 and 10. The first thing you'll notice in verse 9 is it says that these deacons must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now here's a difference then with an elder. An elder must be able to teach, it says in verse 2. Able to both positively proclaim, but also in that negative sense, also defend against false teaching. And that's not a requirement that we see of the deacon. Now, that doesn't mean that a deacon could not teach if they were so gifted. You maybe think of Stephen and Philip that we saw in Acts uh, chapter 6 set apart as deacons. And yet, you turn later, Acts 7, Acts chapter 8, and you'll find Stephen and Philip teaching. Partly, that is, because they also serve in the capacity as evangelists. But the point is, the office of deacon does not require a deacon to be apt or able to teach. Nevertheless, 
He must be one who has a firm grasp on the mystery of the gospel. The mystery. What does Paul mean by mystery here? He does not mean something that's esoteric and hidden in the present day. No, Paul uses this word to refer to that which was once hidden but has now been revealed. It's the way he uses it in Ephesians 3 or Colossians 1. The mystery, he says, for example, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He uses this word mystery just a few verses later. Notice chapter 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then... You notice these words, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. What is this mystery? It is the gospel that God sent his son into the world, that God the son took on human flesh, became one who is both God and man, lived a perfect life on the earth died an atoning death, has been raised from the dead and is now at the right hand of God. And he is building his church. The content of the gospel is what's given there, what Christ has done and is doing there in chapter three, verse 16. And that is the mystery that Paul is referring to. And so deacons, they must be those who understand the gospel and have a firm grip on the faith, that is the content of, of the gospel, and they can say that they hold to it with a clear conscience. So that is the spiritual requirement, qualification. But also, we notice what it says in verse 10, where it says, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Now recognize This word blameless, it doesn't mean perfect, but it is the same idea as we saw in above reproach in verse 2 for the elder, that no charge could be laid against him. This idea as well of being tested corresponds to what we see in verse 6 for the elder of not being a new convert or recent convert, that is a newly planted Christian, so to speak. But what does it mean to be tested? We need to recognize it's not only that a man shows a heart for service in the life of the local church and faithfully serves in various ways. Certainly that is part of it. But this word test has a specific meaning. It means this, to make a critical examination of something, to determine genuineness, to put to the test, to examine In other words, a man is to be examined first according to the qualifications that have just been listed. You notice the language there in verse 10 as well. It says, and let them also be tested first. The implication is that those who would be elders also are to be tested, examined. According to what? According to the qualifications that are given in this very passage And so there is to be an examination of a man. Examined. The elders and the deacons, those who would be examined. It's like what we saw in Acts chapter 6. 
It's a process that's led by those who are in the current leadership of the church. The process led in Acts 6 was led by the apostles who were leading in the church at that time. But it also takes into account the feedback of the whole congregation. The apostles gave the church qualifications and told them to select from among themselves. And so there's feedback from the whole congregation. That includes input in the midst of the process of examination, as well as a kind of culmination in the congregation, in our polity, voting to affirm that, yes, we believe Christ has gifted and called this man. He meets the qualifications given in the scripture. So we have to ask this question when a man is being put forward. Has Christ given this man the gifts? Has he given him the graces here and so made him qualified? So those are the qualifications concerning his spiritual life and abilities. But then there's also qualifications concerning his family life. And what do we see here? This is verses 11 and 12. You'll notice verse 12 first. It says, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. As we said last week, this phrase, the husband of one wife, it means to be sexually faithful. One who is living with his wife, if he is a wife, uh, according to the scriptures, if he's single, one who is remaining sexually pure in that way, that's what the qualification means. And then he goes on to say he must manage his children and his household well. That corresponds to what we saw in verse 4 concerning the elders. Although you may notice the rationale for the elders in verse 5, that if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church, is not repeated for the deacon. Why is that? I think George Knight, in his commentary, gives a helpful explanation. He says the difference indicates that the implication spelled out in verse 5 is not drawn for the deacons because they are not overseers of the whole church. It is the elders who oversee the whole church. The deacon's work is to focus on these practical needs, to care for the practical needs of the church in a spiritual way. So there is an aspect of managing but it is not overseeing of the whole. But then what about verse 11? Why is that there? Where it says, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The word there for wives is this word, gunakas. It's a word that could be translated either women or wives. And so how should we translate it? How should we understand it? The ESV, of course, has it there as wives. But there's four possibilities. On the one hand, it could be that these are women who are also to be part of the diaconate, to be women deacons, and some have taken it that way. Or it could be that they are deaconesses in the sense of being distinguished from the office of deacon, but comparable with the diaconate. Or thirdly, it could be female assistants that help the diaconate. Or lastly, the wives of the deacons. Well, what is it? I would argue that it's not the first. It's not women deacons. It seems that those in verse 11 are too clearly and definitively distinguished from the diaconate to be inherently a part of it. So it's not speaking of women deacons. 
It would also, if it was, speaking of women deacons, contradict what Paul says earlier about women in the church not having authority over men. Because the office of deacon does carry a measure of authority. It is not an office which is then open to women. It also doesn't appear to be the second. The idea of deaconesses distinguished but comparable to the diaconate because Paul could have used the word deaconess. That's not what he used. He used the word that could be translated either women or wives. And so it is, I believe, referring to the wives of the deacons. And here's a couple of reasons why I believe that is the case. For one, when the word is used in the context both before and after this verse, that's how it's being used. So in verse 2, where it says the husband of one wife, in verse 12, where it says the husband of one wife, it is the same word, gunakos, and it's used in the sense of wives. And also you notice that the qualifications that are given in verse 11 are quite abbreviated, dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. It's not an expanded list like you would see if it was actually a list for an office position itself. In fact, you don't see the corresponding idea of the wife of one husband, although that is a qualification given for widows that are to be enrolled uh, by the church. You find in chapter 5, verse 9, the phrase, having been the wife of one husband. We don't see that corresponding here. You also don't see the text saying that they need to be tested First, And so for all these reasons, it's most likely that what's being referred to here is wives. Now, there's one other possibility, and that is it could possibly mean those who assist the deacons that are not necessarily their wives. That is, other women in the church that come alongside and assist them. They don't have the office. They don't have that authority, but the deacons ask them to assist. This is the position, for example, of William Hendrickson, who says that, The deacons would need to make sure that the women that assist them are women that meet these kinds of qualifications. And it's certainly true. There are cases where it's wise for a woman to be involved in giving aid or help to another woman in the church. For example, a woman who is ill and in need of certain care. It's a reminder to us then that deacons do not do all the service themselves but they exercise authority in administrating and organizing the body of Christ to serve. And certainly we see women in the New Testament serving the body of Christ in a variety of ways, like Dorcas or Lydia or even Phoebe. And so this then is the qualifications, those who can serve. It's men who are filled with the Spirit of God who meet these qualifications, not in perfection, but in a way in which They are blameless. But then lastly, we end with this question. Why should someone serve as a deacon? And this is where we see the encouragement given in verse 13, that there are great rewards for those so-called and who serve faithfully. It says, for those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. They gain a good standing before God and before man. That fits with the whole concept of a servant leader and the servant leader ethic 
of Christ and his church. Jesus himself said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he says that those who are last are those who will be first and the first last. That the greatest among you will be those who are your servants. And so you have the greatest standing in that sense as a servant before God. But not only that, you gain confidence in the faith. That is, through this service and what God opens your eyes to see in the midst of that service and to experience his spirit empowering you for that service, you grow in both the assurance of your faith and in boldness in the faith. Phil Riken says it this way, assurance of faith does not come through mere introspection, but through service. It's as our faith is being exercised, faith working through love, Galatians 5, 6 says. Yes, the work and service of a deacon can be difficult, but that service itself is a means of growth, of sanctification, and of great joy. Could it be that Stephen and Philip, it's through their service of caring for the widows that they grew in their faith to such an extent that Stephen becomes the first martyr of the Christian church. Philip grows in such boldness that he also becomes an evangelist to proclaim the gospel there in Samaria. So you see there is great benefit and reward to the one who serves faithfully in this office. Well, beloved, may Christ be pleased then to strengthen and encourage the deacons that he has given to our congregation, and may he be pleased to raise up more of these dignified servants in our midst. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you again for your instruction in your word and how this too is part of the outworking of the gospel, that you have set up a new society, so to speak, your kingdom on the earth, and we are those who are called to serve you. And even the leaders that you raise up among your people are those who are called to serve the other members of your church. Oh Lord, it is a high and holy calling. And it's a calling in one sense that we all have as Christians to serve one another, but some in a special way. And so Lord, we thank you for this instruction and we pray your blessing would rest upon our church as we seek to be faithful to this word that you've given. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.